Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 9. Apostle Paul in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians is defending his apostolic ministry, his office in the ministry. And in the first part of chapter 9, he defends his right to claim a dispensation or support, as we would say, for his ministry among the souls. Even though he did not use that right, he would not abuse that right, He would ground the people in the scriptures themselves, which teach that the minister is worthy of his hire, even as a farmer is worthy, uh, has the right to reap what he plants. And now in the end, he is speaking of something that is so uh, important for him that though he be free, and even free from the right of others to tell him what he ought to do in Psalm because he's a servant of Christ. Yet he's a servant, he's a slave truly in this freedom, serving in the gospel ministry. This is something that we need to remember as we consider the teaching of the law of God. And here we have the meeting of gospel and law that's so important for us to get a handle on we can live according to those truths. 1 Corinthians nine nineteen to the end, we'll read this. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Thus far we read the apostle, uh, the inspired apostle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the very word of God. We remember the enduring quality of this word of God. The grass fades and withers, but the word of God abides forever. We would follow the regular course of teaching in Christian doctrine now with regard to the gratitude of Christians. At that point in our regular exposition of the Christian doctrine and the whole counsel of God, where we meet with the directly practical aspect of our life as Christians, and that is living unto God and to gratitude in gratitude for his salvation in Jesus. Lord's Day 34, which I'll not read at this time, we'll be speaking of that next time in particular with regard to the first commandment. But Lord's Day 34 introduces us to this aspect of the catechism of our living in gratitude. It speaks of the Ten Commandments as the law of God and divided into two tables. And then it lists the Ten Commandments which we read every Lord's Day. And we want to consider the first part of that Lord's Day that has to do with the place of the law in the life of the Christian. It's a very important question, a very important position that we take as Reformed churches here. The teaching of the law is, in fact, a part of the ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ. It's a Reformed, godly tradition that we teach the law as an integral part of our ministry here. Most churches do not include the law and the teaching of it in worship. Deliberately, they do this, 
And they would criticize the teaching and enforcing of the law of God, the Ten Commandments. But in teaching the law of God, the Reformed churches recognize what Moses said of the law and the teaching of it in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'll read that in verses uh, 6 through 8 especially. Therefore, be careful to observe them, speaking of the commandments of God. To Israel, uh, Moses says, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Beloved, I say it's the teaching of the law in the Reformed uh, churches and tradition of the Reformed sets it apart as well as its teaching on the sovereign grace of God to save us unto the keeping of the law but it sets it apart as the great people of God with a great God whom they serve in the midst of the nations uh, who are confounded by the wisdom and authority of this rule of gratitude. We would be outstanding here, not in the proud and arrogant sense, but we would be shining a light in our exposition of the Ten Commandments of God. We would do this in distinction from the dark world, which is a permissive world and lawless. Sign of the end, Jesus says in Matthew 24, is that there will be iniquity abounding. The Greek word for iniquity there is literally lawlessness. And isn't this the case and how evident this is, the lawlessness in our nation and in this world? This makes way, this lawlessness, for the coming of the Antichrist. Lawlessness is describing more and more the church as it apostatizes from the gospel and the rule of gratitude, the law of God. Second Thessalonian, uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 reminds us that the apostasy of the church leads the way to the Antichrist, who is the man of sin, literally again, the man of lawlessness. He hates the law of God, and he's leading those who confess Christ to say they love Christ, but at the same time to say they hate the law of God. This leads to the fact that churches nowadays are teaching for law, the law of God, the very lawlessness that's condemned by the law. So in teaching the law of God, the Reformed recognize the purpose that God has given to uh, in this giving of the law, and that is to teach God. God himself is revealed in every section of the scriptures, and to omit one section is to do uh, negligence to the fact that we are obliged to receive this as revelation of God and of his own holiness. Besides that, his revelation in the Ten Commandments like a mirror of the law of God and of our sinfulness of our sin, and of the fact that we are prone to sin. Besides, in the law of God, we are led, as we are taught of our sin, to mercy and to cry out for mercy, even the mercy of Christ and God's mercy shown to us in him. But finally, and this is especially where we're at in the catechism, we would consider the law of God as a rule of gratitude, it is the so-called third use of the law that the Reformers spoke of, the rule of gratitude, a rule of life. This is why we keep the commandments of God. Why? Because we are redeemed by Jesus' blood. And we would seek to observe all that Jesus has commandment, commanded as the Son of the Father and which Jesus teaches is in conformity to all the law of God. So we want to consider this and consider this in preaching. If you skip back to Lord's Day 44, look ahead, I'm sorry, look to Lord's Day 44, you'll find the reason why we are to preach the Ten Commandments pointedly. 
or strictly, as another translation has it. The reason why we are to preach the Ten Commandments is so, th- so pointedly and strictly is so that we no longer live the more, uh, so that the longer we live, the more we come to know our sinfulness and more eagerly to look for Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. And secondly, we preach so pointedly so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. So, beloved, we would consider the law of God, but we want to consider this under this theme. In fact, all of the commandments I'm going to be preaching under this theme, we are under the law to Christ. This is exactly what Paul says as he is fulfilling the law of God and his commission to be a preacher to Jew and to Gentile, especially to the Gentiles, those under the law, those without the law. He says in the text which, around which I would revolve all the preaching of the gospel of the law that he is under law toward Christ or to Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean for us today Is this just Paul speaking here, or is that a word for us to remember as we consider the gospel and the law in its light? And of course, I would submit to you, this is for us. And so under the law of Christ, his meaning for us, his implication for us, and we are given the same motivation as Paul had as he spoke of of being all things to all men to win them and so on. So what is the meaning? We are under the law to Christ. Now, beloved, at this point in our catechism, there's, a, there's an intersection of gospel, our deliverance in Christ, and law, which intersection many people do not like whatsoever. They say there can be gospel, but no law. Or, as the worldlings say, there's no such a thing as a gospel or a law. We'll just live the way we want. But among evangelicals even, there is this conflict in the, the vast amount, uh, 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 majority of Christendom between gospel and law. We take this on head on. Many are the reasons the world itself rejects, as, and I'm going to be somewhat um, negative here and saying what we're not meaning here as we consider the the meaning of being under the law to Christ. But much of the world in which we live rejects all the law of God. This is because they reject the gospel. And they pick and choose, maybe, from Christian teachings. It's striking how many uh, maxims and proverbs there are in secular literature and even uh, written here and there. But they'll pick and choose, and they'll have morality, maybe, They even know they need some standard, but without the God of the morality. As our catechism reminds us, the commandments are two tables, the first table and the second. The first has to do with our behavior towards God, the second with regard to our behavior towards the neighbor. People, for example, speak of wanting this nation to be restored to a Judeo-Christian ethic, and they say this is the best expression of morality of all of the religions and all societies, and we ought to go back to that. But be careful about that, beloved, because um, this is a, an, a, a morality, even a Judeo-Christian morality, whatever that is, without God and without Christ. And if we really want to go that way to, and call it this, a Judeo-Christian morality, is that what we want to call this? Basically, what the world is teaching, even in the name of morality, is that there is no God and no such thing as one God. There's just this sense of what is right, but we don't want God in the picture. We have to be careful about this. There's antinomians. Those are against the law. That's what that means, antinomist or antinomian, who abound in the name of morality. There's another group of churchmen that seek to promote in their even advancing what they say is the gospel, a life of such liberty that they can do whatever they want. This is the life of licentiousness. So on the one hand, there's the world that says 
We don't really want God in the picture, though we'll have a kind of morality. On the other hand, there's a church world that's saying we can have the gospel and we can have as much as this world as we want and, and let all kinds of people in and tolerate them in the, in the name of love and so on. But in the church, there's, there's other extremes. People are saying that we are saved by the keeping of the law. That's not what we're going to be saying here when we consider the law as a rule of gratitude. Well, they're saying we can be kept by the keeping of the law and that we preserve ourselves in the faith because we merit something with God. These people, in fact, are not people of the gospel, but they would add to Christ himself. They're those who plagued the Colossians, in chapter 2 and verse 16 and following. The people were coming who were adding uh, circumcision and the other dietary laws to the law of the gospel, the law of Christ. And Paul says, see that no one judge you in food or drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance of, is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. And therefore, uh, and later on they say, there, there's all people who have kinds of regulations. Paul says, do not subject yourselves to regulations such as do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So there's people who substitute a kind of morality for, for the, the biblical morality, which is always in light of the gospel, and they would make slaves of people who were set free by Christ. Theirs is not a law or being under law to Christ, but theirs is being under law to their own laws, to their own preferences. And so we have to be careful about that. There's another group of ultra-conservative evangelicals who may not deny the gospel as these people at Colossae were doing. And they are those, however, who make up their own laws. No smoking, no chewing, no drinking, no hymns, even biblical ones, are some examples of these laws of men and not laws of the Bible. No grilling on the Lord's Day or shaving or cooking potatoes as a matter of principle. Yes, indeed, these are the silly commandments of men that are substituted for morality and holiness. That's a form of godliness, beloved, but it denies the power thereof, the power of the gospel in our liberty in Jesus. There's a third group, and a very important group, because they seem to be close to the truth. This group seeks to prevent legalism. And it says it's promoting grace and our liberty in Christ so that the law has no more use. And if we, in fact, use the law, and as we're going to do, preach to the law, how dare you, they would say, that would be sin. Now, Martin Luther and Lutherans today are such as those. They have no use for a third use of the law. They say, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and no law. There may not be any law. You're free. Martin Luther uh, went to a, was a man of extremes. God uses even the weakest men to, to get his cause across. And yet he went too far at this point in saying that there's no use of the law whatsoever. But now, I want to look with you at some texts that these people bring up and ministers bring up, and it seems that they might have a case here. See, what I'm trying to do here, beloved, in this introductory sermon is establish the authority of the law of God as we preach through the commandments. Because frankly, beloved, if we have no authority to preach the law of God, we ought to go home and not even attend the services for the next weeks as we preach the commandments. But if we do, if we do have this authority, then we ought to be glad and attend eagerly to what God's going to say of his holy law to us. First passage is 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 4 and following. If you could look that up with me, I'd appreciate that. I think we'd be blessed together as we read together 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 4 and following. Remember the apostle. The apostle was the apostle of the New Testament gospel, the new covenant. And by grace, he, he was what he was. 
And he was this preacher of grace. This is the same apostle who in our text says, I'm under the law to Christ. Note here, it seems as if Paul is saying we should have nothing to do with the whole Old Testament, including the law. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, law, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. I want to stop right there and just give a couple of explanations here. Paul is saying that this new covenant, this relationship God has established in Jesus' blood is everything. It's far more glorious than the things of the Old Testament. In fact, the things of the Old Testament were called a ministry or a dispensation, a time when God taught a certain way through the letter of the law, written in stones, not on the hearts of the people yet, but it was an age before the Holy Spirit's poured out and the people were taught this way. So what evangelicals do is they say here, a passage teaches like this, that we must, a passage like this teaches that we must have nothing to do with the old covenant, especially to preach it as if some of it anyway still abides. Well, the problem with this, and I say this uh, just briefly here in, in reflection upon this and disagreement with that, is that they're saying too much here. Indeed, the whole ministry of the Old Testament was a ministry of death, if uh, this to the people that it came to. In itself, it could only cause the people to know their sins and miseries. It couldn't save. They were not led by it as by the gospel, but they were led to the gospel by it. That ministry of death was to promote in them this sense that all was not well with them. They needed a mediator. Paul is not here eliminating and abolishing what Jesus says he will not eliminate or abolish the moral commandments of God. So yes, there's a structure of the Old Testament, a ministry of these people, the Jews, to these people, the Jews, which was designed for them not to make them alive, but to give them to find their life in Jesus Christ. That's how the rest of the New Testament teaches this. And I speak, for example, to another text, which is very much related to this, in Galatians 3, in verse 19 through Galatians 4, verse 7. If you could read that with me, too, this would be very helpful. To try to explain how the old and the new go together, how gospel and law go together, old and new covenant go together. In chapter 3, uh, first of all, in the whole book, Paul is combating those who are like those at Colossae, adding to the gospel. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't be hoodwinked by these Judaizers who would add to the gospel as if the gospel wasn't sufficient to save. And this time, he's speaking of the purpose of the law. Galatians 3.19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But look, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. 
under the law. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and put on Christ. For there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus and you are Christ. Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Though he's master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's as far as I'll go there. Point is, in connection with 2 Corinthians 3, there was a time a dispensation, a ministration, a way of communicating truth to his people in which God spoke to people, Jews, as little children. And so the law served as a pedagogue. Much as in wealthy homes, there would be a teacher who would come in on behalf of the parents and teach the child, and the child wouldn't get any of the inheritance until he was come of age, So the Jews were like little children. And all the things of the commandments themselves, not only uh, the Ten Commandments written on stone and the ceremonial aspect of the law, worship, the sacrifice of bulls and goats and so on, and the civil aspect, it all had to do with the nature of the case that God was dealing with immature people. And that's why he says they were under the law then. They were under the law as under the pedagogy or instruction of that law itself. And they were led by this, not to an inheritance, but to know that they couldn't have the inheritance until something else came, until even Christ himself came, who was himself made under the law that he might redeem us from being under the tutelage of that law. Now the apostle is saying you're free from that. You don't need to observe those weak and beggarly elements, those, those things that were meant for an Old Testament age, because now you have something greater, even the Holy Spirit, as we'll see presently. And so you have that passage. Just one other passage, and that's Romans 6.14, and you can follow along, but I'll just speak of this. It simply says, uh, when Paul is urging sanctification here, that... Uh, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's all that I want to say, uh, speak of there. You're not under law, but under grace. Well, beloved, what Paul is speaking of here, when he says we're not under law, is that we're not under the penalty of the law, or the bondage of the law anymore. If we were still under the law, under its tutelage and being foisted about by just commandments even of God and knowing no gospel, we'd still be in our sins. But Christ has come and he's redeemed us from the curse of the law and the penalty of the law. Again, more on that in this point with regard to the meaning of this abiding relevance of the law. With regard to all of this, let us be clear. The truth of the Bible is we are saved by Jesus Christ's blood and by his indwelling spirit. Whatever the law means in our keeping the law, it has nothing to do with our earning salvation. Everything to do with our being thankful people of God and showing it by being holy the way God wants us to be holy. Truth is that the Bible never teaches that the Ten Commandments part of the old covenant, the Ten Commandments as a rule of life, the commandments that Israel was to teach to his children, Deuteronomy 4, that that has been abolished, has been abolished even for time, but also for all eternity. Beloved, there will be a law of God in eternity. There will be a way to serve God in eternity. It's the law of God. Indeed, come to us in a more exalted uh, form, I'm sure, but something there reminding us of the commandments of God. Even before the giving of the written Ten Commandments, God wrote 
this same law of God in the consciousness of men. He wrote commandments 1 through 10 so that all men knew what it was that God required of them. Folly to speak of the law is no rule for holy living today. When the psalmist himself says, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. So we're going to rule that out as far as our worship and devotion, the meditation upon the law of God all the day. And how folly, fool, uh, foolish it is to speak of the law no more as a rule of gratitude when the Christ of the Old and New Testament says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And these commandments, beloved, are they not then the commandments of the Father? And how foolish it is for us to deny the law has relevance when Jesus Christ's great commission has the church going out to make disciples who will be taught to teach others to observe all things that he's commanded them while on the earth. Besides the same Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, came, he said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to give meaning. And then he proceeds in the Sermon on the Mount, remember, not to give meaning to ceremonial laws, which were going uh, the way of the Old Testament, but to give meaning to the moral law, the full meaning of what it is not to murder, what it is not to commit adultery, not to covet, and so on. Now, to be sure, we emphasize when we preach the law of God that there is a similarity. There is this moral aspect of the law that abides, necessarily. Something that God has given to the sons of men to live by as rational, moral creatures and codified in stone for Israel is a great blessing. But there is a difference, of course, between the Old and the New Testament. In John chapter 1, the law is said to have come by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ, as if there was no grace and truth before he came, though indeed there was, but especially since Jesus has come, is there grace and is there truth? And the law doesn't have the jurisdiction that it had upon us in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was first and preparatory with moral commandments, and there were at the same time, do you know this, children? 613 other commandments besides the Ten Commandments of God. They were given to the nation of Israel, which was as a child in need of instruction with regard to its civil obedience and its ceremonial worship and moral life. This was temporary. These things were for uh, the minors that Israel was and as a pedagogue. But now we have the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now we have the spirit of Jesus Christ so that, Paul says, we are under the law to Christ. Now, what does that mean? Other texts have said you're not under the law anymore. Romans 6, 14. Christ came to redeem us from under the law. He came under the law to redeem us who were under the law. What does it mean now that our text says we're under the law? And... What does it mean that the preacher is preaching, that the law is relevance? Well, beloved, it simply means this. It doesn't mean that we're under the penalty of the law, that we're under the, the condemnation of the law, but it simply means that the law is relevant to us. Paul is saying when he says this, that, in fact, he's not without law toward God. That's the first part of the verse, 1 Corinthians 9.21 meaning the commandments still abide. He is obliged to keep the laws of God that still oblige anyone today. But he's under the law toward Christ. And what he means by this is that he is a servant of God in the fellowship of Christ. And really, the text isn't even saying that he's under the law here. It says he's in the law. That's the Greek language. The prepositions are very important here. The other prepositions under the law have a preposition that goes, and I'll pronounce it this way, hupa. We're under the law. We're under the namos. This under the law is translated more properly in the law toward Christ. Now, this little preposition, little word that goes at 
The beginning of a word. It's really one word. Makes all the difference. Paul is saying he's not without law toward God, but now he's in the law toward Christ. That is with respect to Christ. The law, in other words, has a different function. He doesn't need it anymore to learn of Christ. Not really. It's not, and we, we, technically we should not be saying that the law is still a pedagogue to teach us who are in our infancy or, or adolescence of Christ. It's no longer that. But it still serves the purpose of leading us to Christ. Not as that pedagogue, but as those in whom the law is. See, we're not under it anymore as those who have lots to learn and we don't know anything aside from that law, it seems. But we are in the law, and the law is in us. It's in communion with us, and we with it. We are those who are recipients of the great gospel blessings, after all. And now the blessing of the law is such that we're not under its condemnation, we're not under its bondage, and we have Christ as the only mediator. And so we are on the same side of the law now. Isn't this amazing? Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and now he's given us the Holy Spirit. So that law that was against us is no longer against us. It cannot be, because Christ has fulfilled it for us. Now we're in it, though. We're still in it. We're in communion with God through that word, the commandments, through that calling to be holy, and so on. But we're in Christ, first of all, and that's why we're in the law. That's why we are those who have no uh, guilt before that law in ourselves because Christ is our righteousness. We are children of the Father, and we are brought out from the bondage of the law and this terrible um, condemnation that awaits all those who endeavor to keep the law without faith. Beloved, let me summarize this in a couple of verses. In Titus 2, And verses 11 through 14, we read, and we spoke of this last time, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's what's happened since the Old Testament. The grace of God, grace came by Jesus, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now this grace, instead of the law, first of all, teaches us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present hope, uh, present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's this other teacher that's come, the grace of God. And that's also the grace of the Holy Spirit. And the, Je- the Jesus we know whom we look for, gave himself that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. No mention of the law there, but the teaching of grace. But that doesn't mean there is no law. Simply that the law doesn't function as this formal taskmaster, as it were, to lead us to obey our father who was rather distant from us in the Old Testament if we were Old Testament Jews. What's happened is we have the Spirit. What's happened is we have the grace of God within, all because we're in Christ and there's a beautiful communion we have in him. So our keeping of the commandments is from another side of the law because it's from the other side of the cross. The blood of Jesus has made all the difference before the blood was shed. There was Old Testament and there was bondage and there was this hopelessness. But now that the blood is shed, there's this fulfillment. And now that the Holy Spirit has come down, there is this great realization of all that God has ever wanted to say to us. And now he befriends us as adults in the covenant of grace. Understand that? We stammer a few things of this difference and the similarity between Old and New Testament. But if you think of it, now the Holy Spirit bears fruit in us. And the fruit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and temperance. But at the end of that, it says, against these things, this fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. 
Here we are in Christ, in the law, in the communion of God himself who gives the law. It's as if we're seeking to keep the law and at the same time administering the law to ourselves. We are those who are fully responsible now to take things uh, as, as adults and to receive them and to hear what God himself is teaching us as we ourselves are taught by the Spirit and converted to him so that we are in Christ and free to serve him. And that's the implication of this all. In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul who says, I'm not without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ, or in law toward Christ, he's behaving a certain way. How is he behaving? Well, beloved, according to the law of God. And the commandments of God were that he would love God so much that he would serve him and give his life for the conversion of Jew and Gentile. That's what he's doing here. Here's one who preaches grace and law. But now this particular and peculiar relationship with the law that never before was known. He's in the law because he's in Christ. He's in love with God and the love of God is with them. There's nothing artificial and external. There's nothing additional to the gospel here. It's something that comes from it. He's in law to Christ. It's as if he's bringing together the things that seem to be so disparate, law and gospel, and he's saying they are one. I'm not without the law to God. I'm in the law. I'm in the law to Christ. That's how close God and believers are. And it means we're going to live unto God until and when and if it even kills us. That's what Paul's doing here, I say. He's keeping the commandments of God and preaching Christ and his law. His behavior's changed. There's nothing external to Paul of religion. It's all inside. But it shows itself in preaching and in teaching. He'll be all things to all men. He'll be as under the law to those who are under the law, those poor Jews. He'll circumcise Timothy. He'll keep a feast day. Doesn't mean that he's doing this because it means anything. That is, as if it's a principal issue and he has to do this. But he's loving these people. And this is the first and the great commandment. And even cites, does he, in chapter 9 and verses 8 and 9, an Old Testament law about muzzling the ox. And Moses says, you'll not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. And he uses that as a a law of God, a principle of the Old Testament um, that uh, applies to today. And this is what we must glean from the Old Testament. But especially, beloved, he does this in his evangelism. He'll be all things to all men. He's not going to let anything that he does be an unnecessary hindrance to the gospel. The gospel is a stumbling block all by itself. He doesn't want by his behavior to get in the way of the Jews. He'll keep their laws. That's fine, as long as he doesn't deny Christ. And to the Gentiles, he says, I've become... Uh, without the law, not meaning he's going to be lawless and go on a drunken spree with them, but he's not going to be punctilious about them observing Jewish laws. Oh, no. He's going to hang out. Well, he's going to go into that world of Gentile dumb, and he's going to seek to win them. He's going to go to Mars Hill. He's going to debate with the philosophers. He's going to come down, and it's going to be on God's terms. But in a way, beloved, this is biblical accommodation. This is something we have to remember here, biblical accommodation. That is, he's not compromising, but in the name of love, he's being all things to all men. Oh, beloved, this is wonderful. Annexing together of law and gospel, under law to Christ, in law to Christ, in the communion of God so sweetly that everything that God desires, we desire. God says, love me. We love him, of course, because we know his love. 
God says, love the neighbor. We love them, of course, because God says, I'm going to show my love towards you while you were yet ungodly and you're loving even the ungodly. And notice Paul goes on to say, it's not only those categories that, that uh, he'll, he'll take on, he'll be as under the law to the Jews and as those without the law to the Gentiles, but to the weak, he'll become weak that he might win the weak, and he becomes all things to all men, that he by, my, by all means saves some. Now that's a man who's on a mission. That's a man who's not concerned about being some things to some men and, and picking and choosing him will go to and what he'll be and what sacrifices he'll make to be a child of God, an evangelista. He will be on the behalf of Jesus who was nothing that we might be saved by him, who became as nothing and before God himself was as a condemned man. If that's what Jesus did, Paul says, I'm going to be all things to all men. And it doesn't matter my reputation among Jews or Gentiles or the weak or the strong. It doesn't matter what they're whispering behind the closed doors or at the classes or at the synod. I'm going to be a man of God. Doesn't matter if I lose my, lose my scalp or my head is chopped off or I'm burned at the stake. I do all for the gospel's sake. How about us, beloved? This is why we preach the law, that we could be holy and that we could teach others the same thing. And win others by being gracious and wise and loving in the name of the God who loves sinners. Well, beloved, we're motivated this way. And I'll leave the, you with this. There's a motivation. Law applies, but we're far from being able to keep it perfectly. We're in the law to Christ. But how often we show we're out of the law. It's like an outlaw to us or an estranged in-law. We we're not comfortable with the law. How often we show we're not to Christ, that our being legalistic or obeying this and that is not having to do with Christ. It's just because we want others to listen to us. You ever go to churches like that? They have their own laws. They want you to listen to them. And they'll cross valley and mountain, and they'll make proselytes of themselves like the Pharisees of old. It's not only the left wing of the church that's a danger, but often it's the right wing that is the most dangerous to us. They would uh, pronounce us ungodly because they don't, we don't keep their commandments and don't ride their hobby horses like we do. So we need to be motivated because we can be just like this. And as we grow and as we are more established as a church and a family and, and others are gathered to us, we can say you can come in, but only so far because you've got to do this and this and the other thing, even though it's not in the Bible. Or we can let others in because we're frustrated, we're not growing enough, and we say, okay, that's all right, we'll overlook that, even though it's against the seventh commandment or against the fourth commandment, whatever. In the law to Christ is everything. It means we're in God. And we're not without the law to God. We are under God, after all. And, beloved, the fact is, if you say that Christianity is, is lawless and it has no law to keep, well, what law are you going to keep, then? How are you going to live? You've got to live some way. The law of God is given, whereby we can live his way. But we need a reward. Promised, And this is what Paul holds out as a great incentive. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Compares Christianity to running a race and to one receiving a prize, and everybody seeking out compete the other, because only one competes and wins and gets the prize. But what Paul says, in distinction to that, we have an incorruptible crown, and everyone who runs the race wins. Isn't that something? We don't have to be in doubt because Christianity is about running, and it's about even fighting and not shadow boxing. But the Apostle Paul says, in fact, 
I discipline my body and bring it under subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Well, beloved, Paul is saying, speaking there of giving himself literally a black eye. I fight not as one who beats the air, but I fight myself. Sadly, the Roman Catholics have gotten from this the, the terrible uh, aberration of godliness called flagellation. They whip themselves, the monks do, in order to somehow be holy. But the Apostle Paul here is speaking of the essence of holiness. It's this, to be so moved by and in the soul because of Christ that our bodies follow. We're talking about Ten Commandments for bodies as well as souls. And Paul says, I'm going to beat my body. I'm not going to let my passions control me. I'm going to let, not let my bodily uh, passions control me or my soul passions, but only God in Christ, whom I serve and whom I love. And that's what all God's people do. We don't have to be uncertain about it. Oh, I'm not doing this good enough. Because remember, the gospel and the law, and the gospel first, and the law is something that's given as a great gift. Beloved, I leave you with this. We started, our call to worship was this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is the law, and in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This was our call to worship today. This is our call and delight to live the thankful, Christian, Christful, lawful, grace life. Your life, live it. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless us. We stammer a few things about Old and New Testament and law and gospel, but we thank you, Lord, for giving us clarity on the main thing. You are God. Your word abides forever. And your commandments you've written in our hearts, not as some extra biblical, extra Old and New Testament thing, but as something that comes out of it, out of our communion you've established in Jesus and his blood. Out of the communion of the Holy Spirit, we have this inness with you. We are one with you. We love you. We love your law. We love the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all iniquity and the life we have of living according to all your revealed will. Thanks for loving us that we might love you back. May these weeks to come be full of joy that we can have instruction once again in the things of our obedience, the things in which you delight, a holy, happy people in the Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.